Today's episode is brought to you by Indigo Junction and their Indigo Essentials brand of patterns. With a dressy, casual style that embraces minimalism, Indigo Junction combines uncomplicated sewing with professional detail. Be sure to watch the Essentials video for a visual overview of the line and use the coupon code WSN22 to save 20% on your entire order. And now here's the show. Welcome to episode 83 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today we're talking about quilting and painting and living a creative life with my guest, Melissa Avarinos. Melissa Avarinos paints, makes quilts, and writes craft books. She won a Judge's Choice Award at QuiltCon 2015 for her quilt, Face Number One, and won Best in Show at QuiltCon 2016 for her quilt, My Brother's Jeans. Melissa travels nationally to teach her signature class, Making Faces with Melissa, at quilt shops, guilds, and retreats, such as QuiltCon and Craft Napa. Melissa's first coloring book for CNC Publishing, Awesome Town, was released in September of 2016. Melissa's new fabric collection, Yummies, for Me and You, will debut at Fall Quilt Market in 2016, which is coming up. Melissa loves atomic fireballs, pie, unicorns, rust, gardening, yoga, thrift shopping, sad songs, snail mail, and summertime. A self-described imperfectionist, Melissa loves heartfelt hugs and is a good listener. She lives on Cape Cod with her adorable husband, Stuart, and their two golden retrievers, Max and Bo. Melissa Avarinas, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This is my first podcast. Oh, yay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad. uh, I'm glad it's with me. I, um, you know, you and I have been kind of online friends for uh, a while now, I feel like. Yeah, a long time. Yeah. And um, although we both live in Massachusetts, I don't think we've met in person yet, but hopefully sometime soon. (laughs) So so. it's great talking to you. And I want to start off um, by talking about kind of your latest and exciting news, which is your new fabric collection. I know you are headed off to Quilt Market, which is our industry trade show in just a few weeks, to introduce it to shops, and it's called Yummies. So tell us a little bit about it. I could not be more excited about it. I haven't had a fabric line out, as you know, for um, like a thousand years. I think it's been about a thousand years. Um, and this line I'm super psyched about because it's, um, well, I love me and you there. I love the company and Aaron, the guy I'm working with, um, is just wonderful. And the line is, um, about 20 pieces and, um, it's just a little handful of prints, but the colors are amazing. And it's a batik line. It's a modern batik and it's all small scale and tonal, which is, um, what I find that I want to use all the time now. So uh, now that I'm quilting, like my first few lines, um, I ha- I've had three starting in like 2008. And when I was designing those collections, I wasn't quilting as much. I was like making, you know, a dress here and there or a bag or a pillow. And so I wasn't really thinking about um, cutting it up and using a two inch piece. And so the designs were really big and had a lot of contrast. And now that I'm doing a lot of quilting myself, um, I really am drawn to the um, small scale and the tonal print, and that's what this line is, and I'm super psyched. Yeah, I think it's a good point that um, being a quilter, uh, you know, somebody who, who actively makes quilts frequently, really helps when you are hoping to design fabric because it informs the kind of fabric that you're going to design. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, something can be an awesome design, a cool print, you know, and it might be great for, you know, I don't know, uh, bedding, you know, mass produced bedding or, or paper goods or something like that. But if, if it's hard to use in a quilt, it, it's not going to do well. And, and even though I was a quilter, I've, I my, made my first quilt in 1997. Um, I just wasn't actively making a lot of quilts at the time. So um, I, I just sort of like let that kind of uh, slip by me, which seems so obvious now, now that I'm making a lot of quilts and wanting to use fabric. You know, I even have a hard time using my own previous collections um, in my quilts. They often end up as backs, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what is Me and You? Is that a division of a company, another company? Yes, it's a division of Hoffman. So Hoffman um, California Fabrics, which has been around for a long time. I think they're in their fourth generation family, family-owned business. Aaron uh, Hoffman, the guy who I mentioned, is um, like the grandson or great-grandson um, of the you know main Hoffman who started it. And they, they're really well-known for their batiks. I see. And so Me and You is like, is that all modern batiks then? Um, Me and You is their new modern division, which uh, features a lot of batiks. Aaron has his um, kind of the, the house line of uh, batiks, which is the Inda batiks, and then their hand-dyed solids. And, and my collection is actually, you know, kind of under the umbrella of the Inda batiks, um, like a designer version of the Inda batiks. And, um, but they also do, um, regular like screen printed, um, designs like, um, Latifa Safir was their first designer. Um, and she did her collection graphic, which came out in the, I believe in the spring. Um, and, uh, so they, it's, it's a new modern division of Hoffman, but it's not all boutique. I see. Okay. And when you say that, um, that yummies is boutique, um, it, so are you, did you actually like use wax resist and to make this, like, how did, how did you actually design this? Um, they, in the production, they used wax resist. And I love the, the thought of, uh, somebody in Bali hand making the, 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 it's called a chop. They, um, hand make out of metal, the, uh, the print so that they, then they, um, you know, use a wax resist and then it gets over dyed, but they're, they make each chop by hand. And so somebody took my drawings and turned them into, you know, this like, you know, hand tooled metal chop, which they then use to, um, uh, produce the, the boutiques, but the way that I designed it, um, I'm glad you asked that because that's a, in a, another distinction about this versus my previous lines is that I'm a lifelong artist, like a paint, like a fine artist, painter, um, <clears throat> drawer, collager, you know, anything I can get my hands on. And this is the first line that I have that is based on my hand drawings. Um, I also know illustrator and, um, you know, that's what I produced, uh, designed my last, my last three collections in. Um, and I'm very comfortable with that and I've been using that for a lot of years. Um, and so this is the first line where I, you know, did a lot of, um, kind of doodles and, and then transferred them into, you know, I still have to kind of clean it up and take care of it and illustrator to send them the files that they needed. Um, but it was designed, um, like with, with pencil and paper. And did you get to see the actual chop or see any of the production? I mean, obviously not in person, but did you get to see any photos of it? I haven't yet, but I'm going to request it because I'm dying to see a chop that has my weird cats on it. Because one of the prints is, is, um, it, I, I do, I don't, I have dogs and, and I don't have any cats. I love cats, but I don't have any right now. And I'm always like painting and drawing and doing all this stuff with weird cats. And so one of the prints in the collection is, is like a little silhouette of some of my weird cats that were actually taken from a painting. 
And um, I just am really dying to see that top with my weird cat that somebody handmade <laughs> in Bali, but I haven't seen it yet, but I'm, I'm hoping that's forthcoming. Yeah, that would make an amazing like blog post or, yeah. or Instagram series just to see you know, the yep. transformation from your hand drawing on paper and then into the computer and then to Bali and then the chop and then, you know, sort of the whole process and then back as manufactured fabric. So. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've been wanting to email Aaron actually to ask him, can you get a photograph of the chops? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't know when it goes into full production. Like we have the advanced yardages coming, um, you know, for Quilt Market and then it'll be you know, produced to, to come out to stores. So I don't know when the, when the full production happens, but right. I, that's something I definitely want to see. Yeah. That's a great story. Um, so, so as you mentioned, this isn't your first time designing fabric. Can you tell us way back when, what was the first time that you designed fabric for a manufacturer? Um, well, I taught myself how to use Illustrator in um, 2004-ish for, uh, for my day job that I had at the time. And then, in a, uh, and then I pretty quickly, like about after a year, I realized I could do my own work with Illustrator. I had always been a fine artist, as I mentioned, and I had kind of always, I hate to say it, but I kind of always looked down on like, you know, artwork created on a computer. Um, but I realized I could still do my own style with it. Um, and it was just another medium. And I'm always up for experimenting with different media. So I started to create my own designs and um, ended up working with a couple of print houses, which are um, businesses that have like a stable of artists where they um, sell prints outright. Um, so this isn't license- licensing. It's kind of the opposite of licensing. So you work for them and you or you're like a freelancer and you design a bunch of prints and then they kind of uh, meet with clients or go to shows and, and try to sell them. And Um, So I wasn't specifically designing for a manufacturer in particular at that time. I was just doing a lot of designs and and several of the designs were picked up um, by places that ended up turning them into fabric, like actually Robert Kaufman, one of um, a print that I think might, (laughs) this is like the one that got away. I think this might still be in production is the confection line by Robert Kaufman that came out in like, I don't know, 2006 or seven or something like that. It's got these really cute cupcakes and cherries and circles on it. And that was a print that I designed and my, um, the print house, uh, sold it to them, um, you know, outright. So I got, you know, a percentage of that, but not, not a royalty, which is heartbreaking <laughs> actually. Yeah. Especially um, if it's still in production. Cause that's super <laughs> rare that a, yeah. a fabric line is that is in production for that long. Yeah. I don't know if it technically is, but I still see it in, you know, fabric stores. So, um, and then, uh, Victoria's Secret actually bought, um, several prints of mine and, and produced two, um, pairs of pajamas or three pairs of pajamas with my prints. So they were being used for fabric before I really approached quilting fabric manufacturers. But when I did that, so those were all like 2006. And then when I decided I wanted to, um, get into quilting fabric. Uh, I think I pitched my first line in 2007 and that was to free spirit and they picked it up. Okay. And what was that line called? That was sugar snap. Okay. So that came out and then did you switch to a different company after that first line? I did. Okay. And was that Andover? It was. Okay. And that was swoon. That was, yes, Swoon and Dazzle came out with Andover. Okay, and Dazzle. All right. Um, yeah. And so, and then and then there's been this long gap, right, between mm-hmm. between that. So that was what, like 2007, 8, somewhere in there? Yeah, I think the last fabric lines were might have been like 2010. Okay. Maybe 12, 
Okay, so it wasn't yeah. such a long gap as I was saying. Yeah, it's been like four, it's been like four or five years, right? Which is which is like a thousand years in fabric design. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> um, uh, so 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 what happened in there? I mean, was it because you felt disillusioned, or was it because of something else? Was there a reason that sort of it just it, you know did you feel like it's fizzling, or did you feel like I can't do this anymore, or was it like they don't want me anymore? Like, what was the problem? Like, what happened in between? Um. You know, so many things. I mean, I always had a hard time getting a line out because, um, God, <laughs> for so many reasons, um, all the reasons. I am not slick, you know. I don't um, – I, I struggle with putting things together in a perfect package. I, I am much more likely to, be, like, want to make stuff and send it over and be like, hey, what do you think of this? And, like, get feedback and, and um, rather than, like, go – all out and make it all, you know, glamorous and and perfect and send it in complete and, you know, risk them not taking it. And, um, so that was one thing. Another thing is my lines, as I mentioned, they didn't do very well because I wasn't designing for quilters. Um, so it wasn't like, I wasn't one of like the popular designers. So it's not like they were just, you know, take, you know, what I offered, it, it was, it's very competitive. And, and after like around the time that I got into it, it got super duper competitive and, and that can be very disillusioning, especially because as, as we, as the public for the most part now knows, thanks to your posts, <laughs> um, there's not a whole lot of money in it unless you're a very small handful of people, you know, it's not like you make a, a huge living on it. So it's a lot of, um, work and kind of heartache for, for not, um, not a huge financial payoff. I mean, people definitely make money and, and, but I was never the one, I should say this. I never made a lot of money doing this. I, there are people who do, but I was never one of those ones. So it was, um, hard to justify the time and energy to put into it when, um, I knew how, um, small the payoff was for me. And, um, you know, but there's, there's just nothing like having your own fabric out there. It is really, it is really amazing to sew with your own fabric. It's, it's so satisfying and wonderful. And, and I think it has kind of a disproportionate level of, um, appreciation (laughs) versus, versus other things that I might do. Like I have like five books, you know, but it's, it's a funny thing because people care about the fabric more than the books. And, uh, it's just kind of a funny, it's such a funny industry that all the little quirks about it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, because you're making, you're making the raw materials, right? And so people feel like by using your raw material that you've created, they're in some way like incorporating your vision into their own vision. And mm. there's something about that, that people really want. And it's also very collectible. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a definite appeal to having a fabric line that people can purchase. That's mm-hmm. very different from almost any other product. Yeah. It's really interesting. And, and, you know, I talk to people who, you know, want to get into it and, and even when they know what the money is really like, it, it's like, you can't, you can't talk them out of it. And i and I know you probably couldn't have talked me out of it when I was first wanting to get into it. And it's, it's just kind of this interesting thing. And, you know, I, um, you, you had asked why I had, you know, why there was such a break. So that was, that was one of the reasons. So it was hard to, you know, justify, um, for that reason. But then there was also, um, you know, I've struggled with depression my whole life and, um, it's, it's well managed now for the first time in my life in the last couple of years. Um, but so during that whole time, it was, 
I was pretty severely depressed. And so um, I'm kind of amazed that I got any of the stuff done that I got done, all those books and the fabric lines that I did get out and whatever other, you know, things I've managed to do is kind of, I look back and I'm like, how in the world did I get that done when, you know, I was just trying to get through every minute, um, without just wanting to take a nap to escape from, from how I felt. So, um, how that affected the fabric design was that when there was a rejection or, um, you know, um, you know, kind of dealing with what, what can often feel like a popularity contest, um, among the, um, designers or, or, you know, in, in the industry, not necessarily between the designers, but, you know, in the overall, um, industry, it's, it can feel that way. Um, so whenever there was something like that, instead of having the resilience or the drive, um, to kind of bounce back and just, you know, get her done, um, it would send me, you know, to bed for, <laughs> for six months until I, you know, gathered enough energy and strength to kind of try again. And, um, you know, that probably sounds dramatic, if you haven't experienced depression, but, um, if you have just experienced depression, you, you might understand where I'm coming from. Yeah, no. And I, I so appreciate that you talk openly about it and about what it feels like and what it, you know, and, and how you were able to still work and, um, during that time and, you know, that it's really been something that's been part of your life, your whole life. I mean, were you, um, do you remember as a child feeling that you something was wrong or, you know, that other people seem to sort of be able to bounce back or be able to function in a way that you couldn't? I mean, has this really been something that you've sort of encountered or felt since you were really young? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, I think I think I you know, nature versus nurtured. I think I, I think I have it in me. Like I think it's in my genes. I think it runs in the family. Um, but I also had a pretty challenging childhood and, and not a very, um, my home was not a sanctuary where I could go and, you know, kind of escape from school or whatever, anything like that. It was like, there was no place to go that felt, um, safe really. And so maybe if I had a kind of, um, ideal or wonderful or, or, you know, um, warm or, or safe home life. I, I think maybe it could have been overcome at an early age, but that adding to kind of an already probably natural, um, you know, physical, uh, tendency toward depression, you know, I, it was like helpless pretty much. And, um, so I remember, um, being pretty young and, you know, having like anxiety and, um, you know, probably even elementary school, just being super duper shy and really, um, you know, afraid to speak up and, and not that everybody who is shy is depressed or has anxiety, but, um, I definitely remember feeling like, um, you know, so, I mean, so much of it came from my home life too, you know, just being, you know, jealous of other kids who seem to have, you know, a nice house or a, a, a you know, a home where people were like, you know, having dinner together or helping with homework and that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, it was pretty hard always, but, um, high school for sure. I was like actively depressed and middle school actively depressed and, and even, you know, I would say suicidal for, for a good part of it, if not actively suicidal, like there's, you know, you're supposed to be specific about how you say that it might've been more like suicidal, ideology or suicidal thinking rather than actually active. Like, um, you know, I never attempted, but I certainly thought about it all the time. 
Um, so it has, it was always there pretty strongly growing up. Um, and then just kind of continued into my twenties and, um, the suicidal thoughts, you know, kind of stopped in my early twenties and, um, but the depression and the anxiety were, were pretty, uh, hardcore for, <laughs> for a long time. And really only in just in the last couple of years, am I, am I feeling what, what I imagine is what feels normal. Yeah. And I know that, um, that, I mean, I know about your, your award-winning quote, uh, my brother's genes, which I think maybe we'll talk about now, um, only because sure. it sort of relates to your mm-hmm. childhood and your family life. And, um, and I, so I know that your, your brother struggled with some of the same issues. And I, I wonder if you could kind of just tell us about, um, about that quilt and why you made it and how you made it and sort of what it means. Before Melissa tells us about her award-winning quilts, I want to take a moment now to talk about our sponsor. Indigo Junction has introduced a new brand of patterns, Indigo Essentials, a dressier kind of casual that embraces minimalism to create timeless modern fashion. Essentials are simple by design, both in their silhouettes as well as their construction. The patterns combine uncomplicated sewing with professional details for a successful and satisfying sewing experience. Current styles include tops, tunics, a dress, and a pair of pants and jackets. Many of the patterns include several choices for length for a personalized fit. Visit indigojunction.com to see the essentials patterns in a variety of substrates, including cotton, linen, double gauze, rayon, and Amy's Crossroad Denim. Indigo Junction clothing patterns offer a broad range of sizes too, from extra small to 3X. So be sure to watch the Essentials video for a visual overview of the line and use the coupon code WSN22 for 20% off your entire order. Thank you so much, Indigo Junction. And now back to my conversation with Melissa. Sure. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, which is probably a lot of people, uh, so uh, the quilt that Abby's talking about is called My Brother's Jeans, <clears throat> and I made it about a year ago. Um, and it includes, um, it's mostly kind of low volume, scrappy patchwork that includes some patches of denim. And the denim is from uh, My Brother's Jeans. Um, and my brother killed himself in uh, February of uh that's, it was like seven years ago. I, I forget what year that is. Um, maybe 2009, I think. And, um, when my father was cleaning out his house, my brother's house, he called me and said, is there anything that you want of Michael's? And I said, I want his work jeans. So my, both of my, uh, my brother and my father were both tile installers. In fact, my brother moved in with my dad, um, when he was probably, I don't know, 12 or something like that. Um, and they both worked together from that time on. Um, so I really didn't grow up with my brother cause I'm four years younger. Um, so I don't have very many memories of him and we didn't really, you know, we, we were never close after that. Um, but they both had always these, uh, work jeans that were just, um, they had these work jeans that were, covered in like tile, uh, like grout and cement. And they were just like, they, they get, would get so caked on that they would eventually be like so heavy, they would be falling down. So they had to like, you know, get new, you know, start with new work jeans. But I always loved, um, the, the wear and the, 
like um, the collage of the crap that was all over the jeans. Like I just always, ever since I can remember like seeing those jeans, I just always thought they were cool. Um, and so when my dad asked if there's anything that I wanted, I said, I want his work jeans. And, um, they had already been cleaning up the house for a couple of days. And he's like, well, they're, you know, they're gone already. They're in the dumpster. And I was like, well, you know, that's, that's what I want. So <laughs> can you, can you get them? And so, um, my dad, uh, dumpster dove for, for the jeans for me. And, um, I put them in a bag and just hung on to them. I didn't really know what I was going to do with them. I just knew that at some point I would make something with them. And so I, um, kind of held on to them for a lot of years until, uh, this last fall when I, um, decided to make the quilt. And was there, I mean, so you have them and they're sitting, you know, in a bag and, and you know, they're there. Was there some, something like, was it just the spark of a, of an, a design idea or was there something else that made you say, you know what, I think now is the time. Um, there was actually a spark. Um, so I do long arm quilting for clients. Um, and one person found me who, where she was recommended to me, a local woman who's, um, she had a quilt top that she had made with her son's clothes and after her son's death. And she didn't say why he died, um, but he was young. He was like, I don't know, 18 or 20 or something like that. And not always, but very often when somebody, when you hear somebody say that somebody young died and they don't say why, like he died in a car accident or he died of cancer or he died of this or he died of that. Very often it's um, drugs or suicide. And so I just sort of had a feeling that it was suicide. And so I told her, um, we're on the phone and she was telling me that she had this quilt that was, you know, kind of a remembrance of her son. And I told her that I had clothes that were my brothers and, and I meant, you know, I said he killed himself and just to sort of give her permission to tell me about it if she wanted to. And she said that that was what happened, um, with her son. And so, and so then she was even, you know, she was really glad that I was the one who was going to quilt her quilt. And, and I was really honored to do that for her. And, and I was really glad that I was going to do it because I did have that experience. So I worked on her quilt <clears throat> and I gave it back to her. And, um, I think it was probably the next day that I started, it just like released something in, in me. I just felt like, okay, it's time. Um, and I started working on, um, my brother's jeans probably, you know, with, within 24 hours of giving her back her quilt. And we watched, I feel like, um, with you, with this quilt, as well as the face number one quilt, we get to watch it unfold on Instagram. I mean, I, like, at least for me, I, I remember sort of seeing, like seeing it kind of built, being built almost, you know, like mm -hmm. on your design wall in your studio where you're putting the pieces there and taking these progress shots. And I just so appreciate that because I feel like, um, there can be a tendency, as you mentioned, to be polished where you say, here's something fully formed that almost fell from the sky. That's perfect. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I'm going to enter it into this show. And you guys didn't know about it, but I've been working on it secretly for six months, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that your approach, which maybe just, you can't help, maybe it's just your natural <laughs> way, um, mm -hmm. of being like, okay, um, I cut this and I put it up and I'm messing with it now. And here's a picture of it looking messy and in progress. And I think it's something, but I don't know yet. Um, I find that to be really helpful to me. Helpful how? Um, just to say like, you know, it, 
it's a messy process that it's not, um, it, it's not as though every cut is perfect and every piece, it comes to you fully formed. It's like, um, I think the reality of making art and I'm working on a project that's sitting next to me right now is that, you know, it goes through so many iterations and it takes time and it's often you're ready to give up or sometimes there's these moments of, oh my gosh, I can't even stop to go to the bathroom. Like I'm going to work on this for 12 hours. You know, there's <laughs> sort of, it kind of, it goes back and forth. And I, I think that there's an honesty there that is sometimes lacking in the popularity contest because there's a fear of saying, you know, I'm not perfect or something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you're right when you say that, um, when you wonder whether it's just how I am and I can't help it, that is exactly the truth. <laughs> it's like, I, you know, I, it wouldn't be any fun for me to just like do it all and then like present it as if it came out, you know, perfectly. I. I'm really a process person. Like I'm much more interested in the making of it than the final product. And that's where my joy in art is. Um, and so that's why I share it. I, I love it. And I, and I find that people do appreciate, I have heard that before that people appreciate, um, just seeing it, you know, well, for, for a few different reasons, I think people are fascinated by creativity and different artists approaches and, and just seeing me, you know, develop things over time. Um, cause I do share things on Instagram all the time, uh, in progress things. Um, I think people like to see it come to fruition and, the, and feel like a connection to it. Like I saw that when you just cut it up for the first time and now I saw this whole thing happen. I, and I, I love that. Um, like I want to, I want to share that. I want to, it, like it, it's, you know, I say when I give my, um, uh, lectures at cool, um, you know, when I travel to teach and stuff and I do a lecture, I say like, my friends live on the internet and, and I'm not kidding. Like <laughs> my, my quilt friends, absolutely. I don't really have any local quilt friends that I hang out with. Um, so my, my friends live on the internet. So if I'm going to show somebody that what I'm working on, somebody that is going to be interested, it's going to be on Instagram because that's where my friends live. <laughs> you know? That's right. Yeah. And I was just talking to somebody this morning about this connection between the modern quilt movement and the internet and whether one could exist without the other. Um, mm -hmm. And I think possibly, but I think there's also a possibility there that they can't exist without each other, that the modern quilt movement, um, part of the word modern there is is the way that we interact with each other online. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that word extends to the aesthetic and the design um, and the quilting, but it also extends to how we social socialize with one another. Um, mm -hmm. So... Um, so I think they're intertwined. So, okay. So you made this quilt, my brother's jeans. Uh, how long did it take to make? Um, I think I made it over a period of like three or four weeks. Okay. So it was a intense, but probably, but not super, super long. It wasn't one of these things you yeah. labored over for years. No. And I, I don't labor like that. <laughs> I, I don't do that. And I, you know, that was like over time while I was also doing other things. So it wasn't like eight hour studio days for three weeks. It was like when I could, you know, but it was, you know, it was in the living room. It wasn't like up in my studio or anything. It was like taking over the living room, the dining room table and, you know, portable design walls in the living room and that kind of stuff. So it was definitely like I'm making this, you know, and, um, 
I don't often. Yeah. This is my life. Like I'm living this while I make this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, This is what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so, um, so was there, um, a hemming and hawing at all about entering it into QuiltCon or were you just like, sure, let's enter into QuiltCon? I mean, was it like, Hmm, I'm not sure. Is this really for them? Or, um, was that like just an instant decision? No, you know, I, I figured while I was making it that I probably would, if I liked how it came out. Um, I didn't feel any pressure to to enter it or any kind of trepidation about entering it. Um, I knew I wanted to enter something, and um, that's what I was making, and and I figured that I would enter it. Okay, so you yeah. sent you sent it off. Um, it got in, mm-hmm. um, and then you went to teach at QuiltCon. What were you teaching? Mm-hmm. I was teaching my making faces class. Okay, and you were in class when the announcement was made. I was. I was teaching. It was my first morning like of a, like a booked teaching gig. And I was so nervous because I, I, I'm a new teacher. Like I was never expecting to teach really. Had you and taught prior to that? I mean, had you taught that making, was that the first making faces class? It was the first making faces class. Okay. Wow. So yeah. that was right. So you were like, Oh my gosh, I've gotten all this stuff, you know, prepared. Yeah. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know what, how they're going to react. All of that. Yeah. I had done a uh, Penny Lehman invited me out to her house to do like a mini, like a private, um, uh, workshop with her and her friends. So I had taught it in like, I had taught the material, but it was my first like real kind of real, like booked professional gig. Okay. So and there you so are. Right. So you, with all the butterflies that come with that, which I know what those are like, and it's pretty significant. Um, and it was 24 people. Uh-huh. And the expectations are high because QuiltCon is not inexpensive. Right. Um, and many people travel quite a good distance to get there, adding to the cost. And they are there to learn from the best of the best. And so that's pressure too, right? Like there's oh my a God, re- are you kidding me? Totally, totally so much pressure. Yeah. I was terrified. Yeah. Plus, I mean, just like talking in front of 24 people, like it, it, about anything is terrifying to me. So, um, yeah, so I was pretty nervous and, and yeah, I was, I was, you know, we're from New England, so I'm just going to say it. I was wicked nervous. <laughs> Okay, so they come in, somebody comes in and tells you, guess what? Yes. Uh, so Andrew, uh, I think it's Andrew Joslin, um, who came in and was kind of hovering by me, I did, which I didn't realize because I had finally, it was like an, maybe an hour into class. So I had finally, you know, I'm super at like... Like I said, I'm not polished. So when I'm giving a talk and I'm nervous. I'm like, you guys, I'm wicked nervous. Please smile at me. You know, like, I hope I don't cry and run away. Um, so I'm like, I finally hit my stride and, you know, was like starting to like breathe and like calm down and um, not be like blushing and sweating anymore. And Andrew's there hovering and I um, turned to him and I'm like, whoa, hey, what's, you know, what's up? And he was kind of, because he was like all, you know, he was like right there uh, and obviously wanted to talk to me. So I'm like, oh, what's going on? And that's when he turned to, he kind of turned to the room and said, I'd like to make an announcement. And that was that your, your quilt had won best in show. And yeah. so, okay. So I want to talk a little bit about sort of what happened after that happened, because that's when that happens to you, it, you can't help but sort of look to that moment as a turning point in your, maybe in your life and certainly in your creative career, right? Like this is, you know. I would say the premiere, at least a premiere show, uh, and probably in the world, certainly in the United States at this time. And, um, and they've chosen your quilt as like, you know, the best one. So, (laughs) right. I mean, that's, that's really what it is. I mean, there's other really, you know, prestigious shows and there's other prestigious awards in this show, but this is the best in show. So that's a, that's a 
pretty big deal. So, so um, obviously that weekend was just this, you know, fabulous moment. But what happened when you got home? Uh, yeah, so it was amazing when I was there. I felt really, um, I felt like a princess. I've, like I said, I've never been that that girl, you know. And it was incredible. It was um, the like the best moment of my life, really. Um, I wish my husband had been there so that I don't feel guilty when I say that. But um, it was it was incredible. I, I never saw it coming in a million years, and you know, I know that I'm in not a show quilter, you know, not a perfect quilter. I don't do anything perfectly, um, or the right way. And so for me to win best in show was shocking and, um, amazing and wonderful. And, uh, it was a fairy tale. It felt incredible. And, um, so, you know, that happened over, you know, that was like Thursday and Friday. And so over the weekend, and then I came home and, I was like on cloud nine, you know, and, and as the, as I started to kind of integrate back into real life, you know, the, the cloud nine was getting to like cloud eight and cloud seven. And, and I just like, I wanted, like, I just kind of wanted to like recapture that feeling. Cause it, like, it was just so incredible to be around like my people and, um, to have, have that sense of like appreciation and, and feeling kind of validated. Um, and it was just incredible. And I was like, Oh, you know, it's been a few days since, you know, QuiltCon or, or three or four days or whatever. And so people are probably starting to blog about it. You know, I'd love, you know, I'm going to take a look and see what the recaps are and just kind of try to, um, continue the feel, you know, the feeling and, and the experience of QuiltCon because it was so amazing. And, um, so I searched like QuiltCon, um, blog, I don't know, I don't know what my exact search terms were, but, um, it, it, I was led to a couple of blog posts that were pretty, oh, uh, bleh. <laughs> it was just awful. To be honest, it was awful. There were people who were saying pretty awful things about my quilt and maybe about me and my quilting personally. I don't really remember because I, I read a little bit and then I ran away. Um, <laughs> I wanted to keep reading and looking for more. Um, but it was so, it was pretty devastating because like, I, I didn't, I didn't know that that happens. I now know that that happens no matter who wins, no matter what quilt wins, no matter how perfect the quilt is or how many people love it. Um, you know, I don't mean cause my mine wasn't perfect. So, I mean, even if a quilt is absolutely technically perfect, there's going to be a handful of people who don't like it or don't think it should have won or, or whatever. So um, I now know that that does happen no matter who wins. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. And it was pretty heart-wrenching because I had this once-in-a-lifetime honor and there were people who thought I didn't deserve it. And they were saying basically that the workmanship wasn't perfect. Is that Was that the main grounds for complaint? Like there was other quilts that had closer to perfect workmanship and they were more deserving or something like that? I think that was part of it. I mean, um, yeah, I, I definitely think that was definitely part of it. It was, um, you know, there were comments like it looks like my kid made it or it looks like somebody's first quilt. Um, and I can see how if people are precise piecers and they're accustomed to like block quilts and, you know, things that are more precise that that, you know, it would you know, it's wonky. I do. I make wonky quilts, you know, <laughs> I don't really worry about matching. I mean, I don't worry about like matching points and 
um, you know, per- perfection. I'm, I'm just not interested in perfection. Um, I don't want it to fall apart. So I make sure that my seams are sewn, you know, with a well. And, um, so, so I, I was talking with Elizabeth Hartman recently and talking about like my, my wonky quilting and, and how, you know, I was I'm concerned because sometimes people, I think, think that I'm promoting sloppy workmanship or something. And she said, there's a difference between, um, a lack of precision and bad workmanship. Like they're not the same, uh-huh. um, which was really helpful to me like that. That made me think about it in a different way. Like, so my quilt isn't going to fall apart. So that's good workmanship, but does it have a lack of precision? Yeah. Cause that's, that's my style. Um, so yeah, so there was the, the, uh, workmanship comment and then there was, um, is this modern, like it looks old fashioned kind of comment. There was, um, and was there a comment around like, oh, you know, she only got this award because it's about the story of what happened to her brother kind of yes. deal. Like the story was what got them and not the quilt or something like that. Yes, absolutely. I think there was an assumption that that was the case. Right. And that's also really hurtful and hard to it hear. Really I mean, honestly, let's, that's yeah. really hard to, to swallow. Yeah. And, and that also turns out to be not the truth. I've, I've talked with um, – two of the judges in person about it and um that they didn't even look at the description until it was down to two quilts for best in show so it wasn't you know it had it had no bearing right right so i mean i think again i just think it's refreshing to hear like i think that um when you're in the public eye and this was a moment when you went you know you're unknown person in the industry but you really went from being kind of one of many to being in the public eye in a, in a very particular way. And whenever that happens, um, you know, people are going to say things that are negative, you know, it's going to, that's part of what's going to happen. And, um, and how to, how to handle that and how to integrate that into your experience of the day and how to move forward afterward, sort of what do you make next? Um, you know what I mean? Uh, that it's hard. I think that's hard. It's really hard. Yeah, it was that, you know, now that I'm, I'm talking about it, and I'm kind of reliving it and thinking about how it felt. And uh, I was totally unprepared. Like I said, I didn't know that that happens to winners. I didn't know no matter what that that's going to happen or to like be prepared for that. Um, but I'm also a, you know, really sensitive person. And and am not being not used to being in the spotlight in any way. Um, so to have to to be able to kind of shoulder that kind of criticism that feels very personal um, is uh, does not come naturally to me. <laughs> like I'm not the you know let it roll off your back kind of gal. I'm like a take it to heart and you know cry for an hour kind of girl. Right. And then okay, but a lot of other really positive things I think happened after after afterwards. So there was the immediate afterward of yeah. reading these blog posts and mm-hmm. processing what what this really means. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after afterward, I feel like there was some really good things that happened and were turning points for your, you know, did, when I say a turning point for your career, it really was a turning point for your career, I think, and leading to new opportunities. And one of those is teaching. And that was your first class, the, the faces class, your first one at a, you know, a professional gig, as you said. And now mm-hmm. I feel like, um, you're going all over the place and flying here and there and teaching at all of these different, um, guilds and, um, doing, you know, doing quite a bit of that. So what has that been like? And, and do you feel like in some way those opportunities were a direct result or were they f- a result of something else? 
Um, I feel like the, the definitely once I got kind of after a few months, I got over that thing about, you know, what happened right afterwards. And I, and I feel fine about it now. And, and so I have been able to kind of re reflavor the, the wind back to like its original form. Um, and so I, I just feel amazing when I think about it now. Um, and I feel like that some things perhaps came from the win, but I feel like I was sort of already, like I was already at QuiltCon teaching when I won. So that was already kind of starting to be in place. I feel like more than anything, the thing that has made me sort of seem like I've been able to get some momentum, or not seem like it, but finally be able to get some momentum going is the depression um, being managed. Because, um, you know, if I had still been depressed when this all that other stuff happened, I may have just like disappeared, <laughs> you know, like I'm out of here. <laughs> like, this is not, this is not nice, you know? Um, but I, you know, I do feel one of the thing I read somewhere, I can't remember where, who said it, but the, um, that depression, there, there's so many things about depression, but one of the ways you can define t- depression is a lack of resilience. And, and I have definitely felt that in my life. And so I feel like I'm just more resilient now. And so I think that, finally getting the momentum going of all the things that are starting that you're starting to kind of see the the fruits of now like the um the new coloring book and I'm working on another book and the fabric line finally and traveling to teach and all that stuff um the I feel like that is all coming from me finally I feel like I have a second chance at life now I feel like um I had always been like trying to just claw my way out of this deep, dark hole and managed to do some things like fabric lines and books and that kind of stuff, which is still, like I said, like a miracle to me that I was able to do that while I felt that way. But, but now I feel like, you know, it was like about a year after I started to feel better when I was like, okay, like I could have a real life now. Like everything, everything before was just trying to get by, just trying to survive every day. And now I feel like I can think about like my future and, and, um, you know, make real plans and, and try to follow through on things where I never, it just wasn't an option for me before. Um, and so I think when you say your depression is, is managed now, is that through, it's through medication or is it through a mixture of medication and other things? It's. Well, I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time now, and it's um, in the process of writing a blog post about it. Um, I've never really, I've never been public about what that change has been. Um, it happened when I broke my ankle, um, and it is, it is through medication. But it's kind of, I had, I was already on medication for years, so it's sort of a, it's like a, it's kind of a story um, about how that came about, but yes, it is through antidepressants, which like, thank God that that's, <laughs> that that's available. Um, but I was on them before. Um, but there was just kind of a, a, a shift that happened that, that allowed me to finally feel the benefits of it. I see. Okay. And so we'll wait for your blog post to read more about what that story is. Yeah. Okay, great. So, so feeling better and then being able to travel and teach and, um, about how many gigs have you had over the course of this year and mostly teaching, teaching this face quilts class? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, let me see, maybe, I don't know, eight or something like that. I, I did a bunch in the spring and then took most of the summer off. And now this fall I've been doing, like I went to, um, 
LA and Portland in one trip. And then in, this weekend, I'm going to Oklahoma City and then I go to Kansas City. So I'm doing like two places in, in one trip um, lately. And so, you know, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of travel. I never used to travel much. So it's, it feels like a lot. Like I feel like I just got home and, and now I'm going out again. But um, I love it. And it's awesome for me. I mean, I love the teaching, which is a surprise to me because I never thought I would teach. And, and I feel like people um, really respond super well. Like I feel like, you know, I really try to connect with every person in class and, and feel like and I feel like they're getting it. And I think I would know if they weren't getting it or enjoying it. And um, but and so one of the things that is awesome for me when I go places is getting to hang out with the people, you know, like they I think some teachers probably go and just want to kind of like hide away in the hotel room and just kind of rest. Um, and, and I need the rest, but I get so much from like hanging out with the people who like take me out to dinner and, and, you know, pick me up from the airport and that kind of stuff like that is part of the benefit to me of traveling to teach because I'm like, I love to connect with people. And like I said, I don't have a local guild that I belong to and I don't have local sewing peeps and, you know, people that I get together with. And, um, I'm not like going on, you know, retreats that I pay to go on and that kind of thing. Um, so when I travel to teach, it's like super fun because I love the teaching and that's awesome. But then all the other stuff, like the people I get to meet and hang out with is, is, um, like, I can't believe that I get to do this. It's so awesome. And when people come to your class, um, and you know, I think the concept personally for me, and I'm betting for many adults of drawing a face is like mm -hmm. super intimidating. Like mm -hmm. I almost feel like there's nothing more intimidating than drawing a face. Like, <laughs> yes. yeah, draw a house, draw a dog, draw, you know, whatever, draw right. a plant. Okay. Yep. You know, it's fine. But um, but sit down with, you know, a, a box of crayons and a, and a blank sheet of paper and draw someone's face, like a big picture of someone's face where it takes <laughs> up the whole page. Like, no thanks, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's just, I don't know, it's it's hard to do well. And, there, you know, maybe we learned in art class back in the day about proportion and then we forget all those rules. And so we know it's going to look terrible right from the beginning. And how do you do the nose? And, you know, the whole thing is just going to be a nightmare. So so when when you get there and everyone's there looking up at you. I mean, what, what do you feel like they need to overcome in order to tackle this project? Um, that's an excellent question. You're right. People are terrified of <laughs> drawing a face. If you're not somebody who draws faces all the time, it's pretty terrifying. Um, and I think, uh, that's absolutely the case. Um, I actually usually ask people right in the beginning is like, who feels like they can't draw a face and everybody raises their hand who feels like I'm going to teach it and you're still not going to be able to do it. And everybody raises their hand, you know? Um, and, uh, so I think what I try to do is make it really approachable and, um, I break it down so that it's, um, you know, I, I, I do, I, the first couple of hours of class is actually a drawing lesson on how to draw the face. And I know that like strikes fear into the hearts of many, just even saying that. Um, but the thing is that it's like, I, I always describe it this way. It's like, if you ha have to go to a friend's house and you've never been there and it's like a complicated route you know, you're going to follow directions, you're going to have written directions, and you're going to like pay attention to them as you go. But once you've gone there a few times, you don't have to pay as close attention, you just know how to get there. And that's how I describe it. And that's exactly how it is. Like once you um, know how to do it, you know how to do it. And it's not a big deal. The thing that um, I think people hold on to is a lot of quilters are perfectionists and expect to be able to do things perfectly the first time. And I think, um, 
you know, trying to release that perfectionism is, is something that I strive for. It, it, uh, I don't struggle with that myself, but I try to um, impart that in class. Like that's one of, I think one of the, one of my main messages is like, it's really hard to get to the good stuff if you won't do the crappy stuff, <laughs> you know, like you have to do a lot of bad drawings before you get to the good drawings. You have to be willing to I actually even say this in my booklet, like you have to be willing to suck at something in order to be good at it. Um, and I think that the kind of stuff that's freestyle, that isn't a super precise pattern that you can follow and match perfectly and get the perfect result is terrifying to a lot of people. Um, and that's why I think a lot of people take my classes to do something outside of their comfort zone. I don't think a lot of people necessarily think they're going to go on to make face quilts. I think the feedback that I get is that people want to take it because it is so outside of what they normally do and they want to learn how to not be so precise or learn how to do something that scares them or um, just, you know, see my process or just do something that's totally different to kind of shake them up. And, and I find that, um, that, that it is what a lot of people get out of it is that it, it helps them um, to be freer. People come in thinking, saying like, I'm a pattern person, like, and I like to plan things out and then execute. I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this. And then they're doing it and they're doing a great job and they're having fun. And I think, um, you know, I hope it's because I make a safe space for people to, to do that. And I, you know, it's like, nobody cares if this is good or not. This is practice. Why, why would you be perfect at this? You know, I've been doing this my whole life. Like, why would you be able to do it like right away? Um, you know, it's, it's more of a, like, like I said, the process is, is the thing. Um, and it reminds me, there's some resonance there with Sherry Lynn Wood's work and her approach, which is to say like, um, you know, no rulers mm -hmm. and imperfection, um, and sort of intuition, um, and following your own sort of inner sense of the way things mm -hmm. should look without a plan. Yes. Not yep. that there aren't boundaries because there are these boundaries, like, mm -hmm. we're, but, but within those boundaries, there's not a specific plan, which would be a block, for example. Mm -hmm. And th that's another reason why I discourage people from trying to emulate a photo. Like I often get messages like beforehand of like, oh, I haven't decided who, what, picture I'm going to use to do my face on. And I'm like, actually, I, I want you to just make one up. Like, I'm going to teach you how to just make one up. <laughs> and that is, um, you know, trying to do one that is based on a specific person is like a recipe for sadness. <laughs> like, why would you do that? Like, if you don't already know how to do that, that's like advanced stuff. And, and actually, that's not even interesting to me. Like, a lot of people recreate photographs. And I mean, it's cool to be able to do that, but I'm not interested in doing it myself. Like I'd rather just make something up. And, um, so that's what I'm like, you know, I want people to do in classes is, is feel the, and I think it's a lack of confidence or, or maybe a lack of experience in doing that. But, um, yeah, the, the, um, the no rules or minimal rules and, um, trusting your intuition and finding your way, like, um, you know, when someone's like, is this right? I'm, I ask them, does it look right to you? Like, what do you think? You know, and, and, um, have you tried doing it this way or doing it this way? And, um, it's just the, I can't believe how much I love it. I guess I'm all, I'm all excited talking about it. <laughs> I, love it. I, I love it so much. And, and where, where do you feel? And I think we've, maybe we've talked about this. Um, I think we were texting about this maybe like a year ago, but where do you feel, um, about this sort of conversation between modern quilts and art quilts and, you know, there's sort of these tra and traditional quilts. And um, I get the feeling that those divisions or definitions sort of irk you to a certain degree. 
Yeah, well, you know, they can be useful in that, like, if I went to a, you know, I'm much more likely to travel to go to QuiltCon because I know what kind of quilts I'm going to see there than I would go to a traditional quilt show because I'm not really interested in a lot of the quilts that I see at traditional quilt shows. So there, it, it's helpful to, you know, when kind of, when it comes to going to a place to see them, I don't think it's necessarily necessary or helpful when you're just making stuff, you know, like, you know, or if you have a guild and you're doing show and tell or, or, you know, when you're making stuff that you like or trying something out, you know, I don't think it really matters whether you're making a modern quilt or a traditional quilt or an art quilt or, or whatever. I think those, those kind of definitions come into play when you're talking about submitting to a quilt show, you need to know what they are accepting and what they're not accepting. Like I wouldn't, submit a, um, you know, uh, a traditional quilt to an art quilting show. It doesn't mean that traditional quilts are bad. It just means that that's not what that show is, you know? Um, so, but it does get tricky when, um, you know, when people, when it, if those, if those distinctions make people feel bad about their work, then that is sad because art is, amazing and art is the best thing and I want everyone to enjoy it. And, and I do it out of just love, you know, love of making stuff, love of experimenting, love of the material. And, um, I want art to be joyful. And if, if thinking about whether your quilt is modern or art quilt or traditional takes the joy out of it, then that sucks, you know, like then that is not helpful. But I think it really only should come into play when you're talking about like submitting a show or or when you're looking at like a show that's describing itself like if a traditional show is saying like we you know we don't have um art quilts or we have an art quilt section you know a category or whatever like that's that's helpful to know because you're paying money to go see something but when it comes to you and your friends hanging out making quilts or you and your studio making quilts I don't think it means a thing Right. Yeah. It's good for, it's helpful as a broad reference, um, sort of almost like a symbol of generally what this is going to be. Um, right. and, and in that way it's helpful, but maybe, maybe at least in your, in your view, like maybe that's the, really the only way it's helpful. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to your, what, what work you're making, what work turns you on, it doesn't matter. Like just make the work that you want to make. And then if you want to show it, show it where that work is shown. Right. Exactly. Um, and uh, I want to make sure we get to your uh, recommendations because you've got a, a couple of really good things to recommend. So mm-hmm. if you don't mind, we're going to just turn to those for just a minute. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and the first one that you wanted to recommend is um, is a book, I think, by Linda Berry. And I love Linda Berry. And I <laughs> I feel like Linda Berry got me through high school, Linda Berry and <laughs> Sassy Magazine, those two yeah. things together. I'm not totally sure I would have survived high school. I love Sassy Magazine. Um, yes, Sassy Magazine. <laughs> Oh my god! I would still read Sassy Magazine. Every day, de- I would too. I have every issue that I got in high school, and I read all of them multiple times. Um, and Linda Berry as well. So this book, though, is called One Hundred Demons. Uh, yeah. So I was coming up with my list of things um, to recommend, and actually, it's really anything by Linda Berry. I was trying to be specific because I assumed that you wanted a specific thing, but it, like anything by Linda Berry. In fact, I think there, I think what it is might even be more 
the, the thing that's the name of a book that she has that I love. Um, but anything by her is awesome. She's a, this awesome, uh, cartoonist. I think she went to school with Matt Groening of the Simpsons. Um, or she's like a contemporary of his anyway, a friend. And, um, she just writes these awesome comics that are hilarious and heartbreaking, <laughs> which is like, so my jam. And, um, and she does some, she has one called syllabus, which is I think on writing and, she does some stuff that's like visual journaling and kind of memoir stuff. She's just like super creative and really funny and um, heartbreaking and honest. And I just love her stuff. Any of it. I love and I it. can see the resonance in your work in that it's, it's also imperfect. You know, the way that she draws, um, you know, the people in her, in her cartoons are often sort of like hideous in a certain <laughs> way. You know what I mean? They're, they're like, you know, and they also kind of look, um, quickly done, even though there's, they're very carefully done, but there's something about them that, that looks like they were done fast. Um, mm -hmm. And, and also they're sort of horribly ugly to a certain degree, <laughs> but like in the best possible way. Um, anyway, so, uh, the, yeah, I saw her speak, um, maybe two years ago here in Wellesley and oh. she's hilarious in person as well. I've so. never seen her in person. And she also, have you read Cruddy? I haven't read Cruddy, no. It's, it's her, um, one of her novels and I haven't read it in a while, but it's like, so, I mean, I just so resonates with like crazy childhood, weird sadness kind of thing, you know, like she, she just writes this heartbreaking story, but the way she writes is just so funny. Um, so yeah. Okay. I recommend. So that's another one to, to check out. That sounds like something I would like to. Um, okay. And then I, you had one other that I wanted to make sure we talk about, which are these micro fine glue tips by, um, Sharon Chamber. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I use those. Um, and I you can think you can get them through Christy Fincher, Sharon Chambers daughter um, at Purple Daisies. She so it's this tiny, it's this like super duper fine glue tip that screws onto like an Elmer's glue bottle. And I use those in my um, when I'm doing the Riage applique. Um, and actually, I was just using them um, for um, I had an assignment for my art licensing agency on these collages. And I was just, I realized I was like, I am sick of like trying to use a glue stick on these. I mean, doing these tiny little tiny pieces, like smaller than like a lentil. And, um, so I pulled out my, uh, my glue with my tiny, tiny little glue tip on it. And, you know, just, it was like so easy. So I love if you do any kind of collage, whether fabric or paper, they're like magic. Yeah. And having the right tools so that you can get something so fine like that. Um, you can struggle forever, right? Like dipping a toothpick in there or something and trying yeah, to do this and it's like that? oh no. god don't do it just go <laughs> no. get this because they're not that expensive and no. um and I know tons of people rave I don't actually own one but I know tons of people rave about them and um and it's been recommended on the show in the past so if you if you do applique or collage you know just go get yourself some <laughs> yeah you'll be happy so um so Melissa if somebody wants to get in touch after listening to the show um what's the best way for them to reach out or follow you um, uh, can follow me on, uh, Instagram. It's just Melissa Averinos. Um, and, uh, or they could email me Melissa at Melissa Perfect. And thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Wall Street Apps podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. I'm psyched. And like my first podcast experience was awesome. Thank oh, you so much. <laughs> okay. That makes me feel good. <laughs> and you've been listening to the Wall Street Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, wallstreetapps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing and blogging and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. And thank you to today's episode sponsor.
Indigo Junction and their Indigo Essentials brand of patterns. Think of the Essentials line as building blocks to creating a chic and comfortable wardrobe that is simple by design. Be sure to watch the Essentials video for a visual overview of the line and use the coupon code WSN22 to save 20% on your entire order. Thank you so much, Indigo Junction. And if you enjoyed this show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.